Well, good morning. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. It is my great joy to be with you all this morning. It has been a privilege to get to know uh, Nick and Randy and Marcus. uh, And Lord permitting, I'm excited to get to know uh, more of you this afternoon. So please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 90. That'll be our text for this morning. Let me read that psalm for us, and then I'll pray one more time. Hear now the reading of God's word. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening, it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us, and for as many years as we've seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, we need your help. Lord, we are sinful and weak and needy and distracted. So, Father, would you send the same Holy Spirit who inspired this text to help us now? Would you help me to explain, to unfold Psalm 90 faithfully and clearly? Would you give all of us hearts to hear and receive by faith what you say to us? Would you open our eyes that we would behold wondrous things out of your law? Lord, that we would even behold the Lord Jesus in his great glory. We ask these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. One of my favorite books is a novel uh, by Leo Tolstoy called Anna Karenina. And if you've read that book, you'll know that there's a scene in Anna Karenina when one of the main characters, whose name is Lievin, 
visits his dying brother. And as Lieven sees his sick brother near to death's doorstep, it sets him thinking about death. Let me read you a section uh, from Anna Karenina. Tolstoy writes, Lieven's brother, the sick man, lay down and may or may not have slept, but being a sick man, tossed, coughed, and grumbled something when he was unable to clear his throat. Sometimes when his breathing was difficult, he said, Ah, my God! Sometimes when phlegm choked him, he said vexedly, Ah, the devil! Lieven lay awake for a long time listening to him. His thoughts were most varied, but the end of all his thoughts was one. Death. Death, the inevitable end of everything, presented itself to him for the first time with irresistible force. And this death, which here in his beloved brother, moaning in his sleep and calling by habit, now on God, now on the devil, was not at all as far off as it had once seemed to him before. It was in him too. He felt it. If not now, then tomorrow. If not tomorrow, then in 30 years. Did it make any difference? Levin thinks to himself, I work I want to do something, and I've forgotten that everything will end, that there is death. The more he strained to think, the clearer it became to him that it was undoubtedly so, that he had actually forgotten, overlooked in his life one small circumstance, that death would come and everything would end, that it was not worth starting anything, and that nothing could possibly be done about it. Yes, it was terrible, but it was so, end quote. Happy Sunday to you all. Well, if you are a Christian, then you know what the Bible's answer to the problem of death is. Jesus Christ died for death-bound sinners, and he rose from the grave three days later to offer eternal life to anyone who would turn and trust in him. To use the language of Psalm 90, God is the eternal dwelling place of his people, even beyond death. That's the Bible's answer to the problem of death that Tolstoy is wrestling with in this passage. But have you noticed that when the Bible talks about our problems, like sin and suffering, and death, and futility. It doesn't always rush to the resolution of those problems. If you were to put Psalm 90 beside that passage from Tolstoy that I just read, in the first two verses of Psalm 90, it would seem that Moses is going to answer Tolstoy's despair. He's going to say, Tolstoy, here's why you're wrong. Here's why there is hope. But if you keep reading... For most of the psalm, Moses sounds a lot like Tolstoy. Lievin, and Tolstoy through him, is gripped by the brevity and the futility and the misery of life given its impending end in death. And for most of Psalm 90, so is Moses. Brothers and sisters, so often before the Bible gives us the resolution of our problems, It feels with us 
in our struggle. Scripture teaches us not to jump to a solution, but to think and speak and pray about what we're facing by faith. God doesn't require us to pretend that we're not sad about things like misery and death. Instead, God in his mercy, he gives us the Psalms to teach us to breathe our sorrows out to him at his mercy seat, even as we sang a few minutes ago, to make him our dwelling place as we bring our difficulties to him. Before Psalm 90 resolves the problem of death for us, Psalm 90 paints a picture of our lives under death. And then Moses offers to God a desperate plea in light of our circumstances. That's going to serve as our outline this morning. The the psalm divides into those two halves. So in the first half, verses 1 to 11, we see a picture of our lives. That'll be the first heading in the sermon if you're a note taker. Then the second half will be the desperate plea that Moses offers to God from verses 12 to 17. So verses 1 to 11, a picture of our lives in verses 12 to 17, a desperate plea. And in this first half of the psalm, verses 1 to 11, this picture of our lives that Moses paints for us, I want us to see three things, so three sub-points, if you will, that Moses shows us in this picture. The first thing we see in this picture of our lives is that life is short. Life is short. Did you notice that Moses begins the psalm not by talking about us, but by talking about God. And specifically, Moses addresses God as the eternal one. Look again with me at verses one and two. Moses writes, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Friends, if you could travel immeasurably far back in time, so to speak, before time was created, what would you find? You would find that God was there, the eternal and transcendent one. If you could travel immeasurably far forward into the future, what would you find? You would find that completely unchanged, God is there, the eternal dwelling place of his people. In Abraham's day, in Moses' day, in King David's day, in the days of Israel's exile, in the Apostle Paul's day, in St. Augustine's day, in the early church, in St. Anselm's day, in the Middle Ages, in Martin Luther's day during the Reformation, in Jonathan Edwards' day in the 18th century, in our day, God has been there, the unchanging dwelling place of his people in all generations. And not only has God been there for a long time, Moses says that God is so big, he's so transcendent, that his relationship to time is different than ours. Look there at verse 4. Moses writes, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Think about yesterday. What did you do? How did it go? Did it seem long? Well, now it's over. Moses says that's how millennia pass our God by, like a watch in the night. Moses addresses God as the eternal one, and his meditations on God lead him to reflect 
that exactly the opposite is true of our lives here on earth. We're really not here for too long. Look there at verse 3. Moses writes, You, speaking to God, return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. What does that sound like? It sounds like Genesis 3. After man sins and God says, Because you're dust to dust, you shall return since you've sinned against me. Look there in verses 5 and 6. Moses writes, you, again God, sweep them away as with a flood. What does that sound like? Genesis 6 to 9, the flood. It's almost like Moses has read Genesis. Moses wrote Genesis. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning, it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening, it fades and withers. God is eternal. He's more permanent than the mountains. And we were like a sand sculpture swept away by the rising tide of the ocean. We're like a dream so vivid for a moment and gone in an instant. We're like quickly fading grass, flourishing in the morning, fading in the evening. Friend, think for just a moment about the things in your life that help you to feel like you're flourishing. What is it that when you have it, while you're enjoying it, you feel alive and flourishing? What Psalm 90 would tell us this morning is that if you zoom out just a little bit, as you're enjoying those things, those good gifts from God, the big picture is that you're withering up and dying like grass. And soon we will be gone. Let me just give you two examples. First example is fitness. I might not look like it, but I really enjoy when I have time uh, to pursue fitness. Seminary has put a pause on that, but I really, it's one of the things that helps me to feel that I'm flourishing when I can enjoy exercise. Psalm 90 would say to me that, hey, if you zoom out a little bit, your fitness journey is headed for dust and for an ever increasing amount of breakdown along the way. That's the reality. We are withering and fading. Here's another example. Relationships. What a good gift from God are our relationships. When you're with those whom you love, it helps you to feel that you're alive and flourishing. Well, Psalm 90 would remind us that here is how all of our relationships in this life end. All of our relationships end this way. Either you will lose contact with that person. There will come a point where you'll never speak to them again and they'll never speak to you again. Or you'll go to their funeral or they'll go to your funeral. There's more to say for believers, but Moses wants us to feel the weight of the fact that our lives are short. We are headed for an imminent death. That's the first thing we see in this picture of our lives, that our lives are short. The second thing we see in this picture of our lives, so first heading, second subpoint, is why our lives are short. Our lives are short because God is angry. God is angry. That's the second subpoint. Our lives are short because they're cut short by death inflicted by an angry God. There in verse 3, we saw that God returns man to dust. 
Verses 5 and 6, God sweeps man away as with a flood. We're like fading grass. Why does God do that? Look at verses 7 and 8. Moses tells us. He says, for we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. Why is God angry? Is he just a grumpy type? Is it irrational anger? Friends, not at all. Moses, who wrote this psalm, is the one who told us that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So we know that if he's angry, he's angry with good cause. And notice what Moses tells us that cause is in verse 8. Moses says, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Friends, I'm not sure that there are any more terrifying words in the Bible, but we must hear them. The eternal, transcendent, older than the mountains, bigger than creation God. The God that Daniel says is the God in whose hand is your breath. The God who gave you life out of dust. The God whose planet you walk around on, whose water you drink, whose food you eat. That God sees all of our secret sins, verse 8 says. That God sees all of our public and private rebellion against his right to rule as our good creator. And he's right to be angry. Author Tobias Wolff tells a story about his experience growing up in a Catholic school when he participated in an after-school archery club. And Wolf writes that the school staff really didn't do a very good job supervising who had access to the archery equipment. So pretty soon, instead of shooting at targets, these boys in the Catholic school, they started shooting at the cats in the schoolyard. And when that got boring, they would take the bows and arrows out into the woods and they would shoot at each other. They would hunt each other in the woods. And Tobias Wolf writes about how the kids were in total denial about what they were doing as they shot bows and arrows at each other. He says, quote, We did so in a resolutely innocent kind of way, never admitting to ourselves what the real object was to bring somebody down. It was all fun and games. They, they weren't very good shots, so no one ever got uh, terribly injured until one day Tobias was about to shoot his buddy in the trees. He had his arrow knocked, his bow drawn back, and he heard something behind him. And so he swung around, and what did he see but Sister James, one of the nuns from the Catholic school. And he says that in the light of her presence... He couldn't lie to himself anymore about what he had been doing. The light of her presence illumined his sin as sinful. Friends, Moses says that God has set our secret sins in the light of his presence. God sees everything that we have ever thought, said, and done. 
And he sees exactly what's going in our hearts that leads us to think and say and do what we do. God sees when we do good things for our glory. God sees when we are worshiping and the eyes of our hearts are actually on ourselves worshiping and not on the God that we're meant to be worshiping. God sees every passing flash of hatred, every proud and self-glorifying fantasy, every word that's intended to hurt other people. God sees all of our envy. He sees all our lust, all our proud and judgmental attitudes. God has the complete timesheet of our lives. God knows how we've spent or wasted every minute that he has given to us. God sees how much we just love and care about ourselves rather than the glory of his name and the good of his people. And God is right to be angry about it. If Sister James wasn't angry that those boys had been shooting potentially lethal weapons at each other for fun, That would have been evil of her or cowardly. Friends, God is not evil or cowardly. And his anger toward our sin is right and good. I would love at this point to move on from the effects of sin in our lives, but Moses doesn't. Sin doesn't just bring death at the end of our lives. In fact, as a warning against the final and eternal fate of those who continue in sin, God has caused the presence of sin in our world to affect the quality of our lives while we're here. So look there at verses 9 and 10. Moses writes, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone. And we fly away. You don't need me to tell you that in this sin-corrupted world, there is much toil and trouble. Sometimes our health and our relationships and our work and even our enjoyment can help us to feel that we're flourishing and alive. But other times they can just be so full of toil and trouble. Our sin has earned us not only death, but toil and trouble in this life. Let me just take a moment to clarify something. The Bible never teaches that there's a one-to-one correspondence between a person's sinfulness and how long a person lives, or between a person's sinfulness and what that person suffers in life. Sometimes there's a causative relationship, but the Bible says that that's not always the case. But what's very clear is that death and toil and trouble are in our world because we are a race of sinners who has rebelled against God. And if I were to be honest, more of my troubles than I'd like to admit are my own fault. Not all of them are, but some of them are. As Moses paints this picture of our lives, he wants us to see that our lives are short because God is angry. He's rightfully angry over our sin. And so we live difficult lives in the shadow of death. Third and final thing that we see in this picture of our lives, much more briefly, We are foolish. We are foolish. In verses 1 to 10, Moses has lamented that our sinfulness has been set before a holy God and that we are undone. Well, look with me at verse 11. How do we respond to this reality? 
Moses says, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Do you see what Moses is asking? He's saying, Lord, who even gets it? Who even realizes that this picture of our lives in verses 1 to 10 is true? Our sins have been set before the light of God's presence, and we don't even care. That's not even what keeps us up at night. We're more anxious at night about our own sinful pleasures than about God's knowledge of our sins. Thus far, the picture of our lives in Psalm 90. Life is short. God is angry. We are foolish. So it's worth saying that this is not the only picture that God gives of life in this world. There are cheerier truths about our lives that the Bible tells us, even about God's common grace in this world. But if we're honest, we have to admit that the picture that Moses has painted is true. Our lives are short. God is angry. We are often so foolish. So brothers and sisters, aren't you glad that Moses doesn't leave us there? Psalm 90 is, as we've seen, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And after Moses laments our condition, he begins to ask God for what we desperately need there in verse 12. So that's our second big heading this morning, a desperate plea. And as in the first half of the psalm, I want us to see three things that Moses asks for in this desperate plea. So again, three subpoints under Moses' plea. Moses had ended his picture by lamenting that we lack wisdom, that we're foolish. And so the first thing that Moses asks for is for wisdom. He says, who considers, Lord, that this is even the case? Verse 12, then he says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. In light of what we've seen, Moses asks that we would get a heart of wisdom by numbering our days. I don't think that Moses means calculating how long we're likely to live and then converting it to days. I think what he's saying is, that we need to come to grips with the reality that we live in the world of verses 1 to 11. Having a heart of wisdom is the opposite of verse 11. It's not failing to consider God's anger and his wrath according to the fear of him. Numbering our days means internalizing that life really is short, that God really is angry, and that soon we will need to reckon with him. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I'm not a member of this church, but just on behalf of the church, I can say that we're so glad that you would come to hear God's word this morning. We're delighted that you would come if you're not a follower of Jesus. Because we love you, friend, we want to tell you that the kindest thing that God could do for you is to reveal to you that you live under his wrath and that he has offered a way of escape in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll say more about that in just a moment. For those of us who do know the Lord, numbering our days is still essential to getting a heart of wisdom. If we would live wisely in this world, we have to come to grips with the reality that this picture is true of us. Understanding verses 1 to 11 as the world that we live in, it helps us not to cherish unbiblical expectations about this life. The grass seems so much greener on the other side of graduation or whatever else. 
But the Bible says that, hey, there's, tr- there's toil and trouble over there too. Numbering our days helps us when we feel entitled and full of self-pity, as though we had deserved better from God than what we're getting. Numbering our days reminds us, hey, God has seen all of our secret sins, and we are getting better than what we deserve from him. Numbering our days guards us against idleness because we realize how little we've been given to love and serve our God. Can you see how, friend, numbering our days is integral to getting a heart of wisdom? The last thing that Moses had lamented in his picture of our lives is that we're foolish. The first thing he asks for is wisdom. I think that we're right to see as Moses continues to work through this desperate plea is that this psalm has a chiastic structure or it's a chiasm if you're a literature nerd. If you're not a literature nerd, good for you. In other words, Moses starts by saying that our lives are short, God is angry, we are foolish, and then he works backwards through those three. So we're foolish, so he first asks God for wisdom. Before that, God was angry. And next, Moses asks God for mercy. There in verse 13, Moses begins to ask God for mercy. Second thing in his desperate plea. Moses has acknowledged the justice of our misery. Moses has not suggested for a moment that God's wrong to be angry or that if he would just rerun the numbers, he would find that really we're not as sinful as all that. Moses Moses has rightly understood all that God has decreed concerning our sins. And then in verses 13 to 17, he says, God, please just show mercy. Please just don't give us what we deserve. By the way, can you think of another time in the Bible when Moses stood between a holy God and a sinful people and asked God for mercy? We'll come to that in a moment. Look with me again at verses 13 to 17. I love this. This has to be one of the gutsiest prayers in the whole Bible. Because Moses uses exactly the language that expressed our condemnation in the first half of the psalm. He uses the same terms to ask that God would be merciful. Look at this. Verse 3 says that God returns man to dust. Verse 13, Moses says, return, O Lord. Lord, would you return? Would you turn away from your wrath and turn back to us to have pity? Verse 6, Moses says, our flourishing is so short, it lasts for a morning. Verse 14, Moses says, God, would you satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love? We deserve to wither quickly in the morning, but would you show us steadfast love in the morning instead? Verse 9, Moses says, all of our days pass away under your wrath. Verse 15, Moses says, would you make us glad for that many days? Verse 10, Moses laments how short our years are. Verse 15, God, Moses says, God, would you give us that many years of gladness? Moses is asking for a complete and total reversal of what God's people have deserved. What are the words that characterize God's disposition toward his people in the first half of the psalm? Verse 7, anger. Verse 7, wrath. Verse 9, wrath. Verse 11, anger. Verse 11, wrath. What are the words that Moses asks would characterize God's disposition toward his people? Verse 13, pity. 
Verse 14, steadfast love. Verse 17, favor. Moses makes an audacious request for sheer mercy, for exactly what we don't deserve. And what's utterly shocking, if you know the story of the Bible, is that God answers Moses' prayer. Remember with me what happens in the book of Exodus. Just a few chapters before Exodus 32, Exodus 19 and following, God shows up on Mount Sinai to deliver his law and to make a covenant with his people. And from Mount Sinai, in fire and smoke and glory, God says, don't make idols. It's the second of the Ten Commandments. God enters into a covenant with his people. Moses goes up the mountain for a few weeks and God's people are like, hey, let's make an idol. And when Moses comes back down and God addresses the golden calf that they've made to worship in his place, he says, Moses, get out of the way because I'm going to destroy them because what they've done is the spiritual equivalent of adultery. And Moses intercedes for the people of God. He says, God, you're right about their sin, but would you show us steadfast love instead, please? Don't visit us with the judgment we deserve. Visit us with mercy instead. And God does. God shows mercy to his people. I think what we see is happening at this point in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 90, by throwing our attention back to Moses, is that God is showing us what the answer to all of his people's problems is. You might know that the book of Psalms is not a randomly organized collection. It's, it's not like some hymnals where number 12 has nothing to do with number 13. The Psalms are very intentionally ordered, uh, divinely inspired, uh, to enrich the meaning of each psalm and to serve as kind of a theological commentary on the history of Israel, right? Think about it. If Psalm 90 was written by Moses, it had to be the first psalm written. Well, why isn't it the first psalm? Why is it Psalm 90? Here's what I think is going on. We don't have time to trace the whole flow of the book of Psalms, but suffice to say, Psalm 88 and Psalm 89 are the very lowest point in the book of Psalms. Psalm 88 is a bitter personal lament about spiritual depression and terrible suffering. The psalmist says, darkness is my only companion. He says, God, all of your waves have crashed over me. And then Psalm 89 is the equivalent, but on a national scale. Psalm 89 starts out, and the psalmist is rejoicing in God's promises to David. He says, Lord, you've promised that David's descendant will sit on his throne forever and rule over your people in blessing and might. And then it says, but God, you've defiled his crown in the dust. It says, Lord, it looks like you've broken your covenant with David. Where's your steadfast love, God? I think we're meant to read Psalm 89 in light of the exile. Moses had brought the people of Israel into the promised land. Because of their sin, they had been kicked out in the exile. And there was no Davidic king apparent on the throne. So Psalm 89 says, God, it looks like because of our sins, you've broken your promises. It looks like our sins are bigger than your mercy. And in that context... Along comes Psalm 90. 
which throws us back to Moses and specifically to Moses as the mediator of God's sinful people. And it's as though the book of Psalms is saying to its readers, listen, we have sinned big. God's wrath is terrible. Exile is awful. It does look like God's promises have come untrue. But do you remember that time when God gave us a mediator to stand between himself and us and to obtain for us the mercy that we didn't deserve but desperately needed? Do you remember when God did that for us? That's our hope. That's what Psalm 90 is saying. In other words, Psalm 90 teaches us about the intercession of the divinely appointed mediator for the sinful people of God. Or in other words, Psalm 90 is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as the book of Hebrews says in chapter 3, everything that Moses said and did, he did as a testimony to what was going to be spoken later. Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant, but Christ, the apostle and founder of our faith, he was faithful over God's house as a son, the greater mediator than Moses. 1,400 years after Moses came to deliver God's people out of slavery in Egypt, Jesus Christ came to deliver God's people from slavery to death and to toil and to trouble and to sin and to the wrath of God that we see in the first half of Psalm 90. That is the slavery that Jesus Christ delivers us out of. Psalm 90 verses 1 to 11. Moses, he brought God's people out of Egypt into Canaan for a little while before they got kicked out again because of their sins. And Moses didn't even make it into the promised land because he himself was a sinner. Jesus never had any secret sins. One of the most amazing verses in all the Bible is when Jesus says, I always do the things that are pleasing to my father. Think about that. Jesus Christ had no secret sins in any crevice of his heart. And even though Jesus was the one person whose obedience could have exempted him from death, Jesus came so that he might die under the wrath of God that we read about in Psalm 90 verses 1 to 11. So that anyone who would believe in him might be forgiven that their guilt might be transferred from themselves to the saving substitute, Jesus Christ. He rose in victory over the death that Moses laments in this psalm, and he offers eternal life to anyone who will turn from him. And Christian, you know what Jesus is doing right now, don't you? Where is Jesus Christ? He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Doing what? Interceding for us. 1 John 2, my my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Moses? No. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And friend, you know that Jesus' argument in his intercession is better than Moses' argument. What's Moses' argument in Psalm 90? He doesn't have an argument. He just says, God, please show us mercy. What is Jesus' argument? What does the next verse in 1 John 2 say? It says, he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Friends, 
We sing about the intercession of Jesus in these words sometimes. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. Friend, this morning, if you are in Jesus Christ, know that the intercession of your mediator at the right hand of God obtains for you, instead of God's wrath, God's favor, his steadfast love, his pity. Two points of application for us here. First and very briefly, Christian, when you believe that God is not disposed toward you in steadfast love, you're believing that God the Father doesn't answer the prayers of Jesus Christ. I have to confess, so often I feel that God must still be displeased with me. But when I believe that, I'm refusing to acknowledge that God would listen to the prayers of his beloved son, whom he put at his right hand to intercede for me. What a silly thing to believe. Second point of application. Do you see how the radical mercy of God in Jesus frees us to confess and to turn from our secret sins? The mercy of God in the intercession of Jesus frees us to confess and to turn from our secret sins. Listen, we spend lots of time trying to hide our sins from ourselves and from others to pretend that our hearts are not as sinful as they are. But Psalm 90 drops an atom bomb on our conscience. It says God has set all of our secret sins in the light of his presence. And in mercy, that God who knows the very worst about you has loved you at the cost of his son. He gave his son to absorb his wrath against that sin. And when we turn to him, When we bring our secret sins that are not secret to him, when we bring them into the light, confess them to him and to his people as a means of grace, we find that he is full of mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Sometimes we we act like we are our own defense attorneys. Paul Tripp talks about having an inner law firm. When someone accuses him of something, he goes to work, right, telling himself and everyone else why the accusations against him are not justified and he is in the right. Friends, you don't need your inner law firm. Fire your inner law firm. You have a lawyer. He's in heaven. And the defense of his shed blood is better than the smoke and mirrors that we use to justify ourselves. One of the godliest men I know told me recently that he had to apologize to his wife I don't know what he said to her, but he said that he had to say to his wife, honey, I'm sorry. I said that in order to make me feel big and you feel small. Why would he confess that? No one could prove that. His wife probably knew, but no one could prove that. Why would he drag that into the light? Because he knows that God already sees it and that God offers mercy to those who bring their sins to him in repentance and faith. 
Friends, the radical mercy of God in the intercession of Jesus frees us to confess and to turn from our secret sins. Third and final thing we see in Moses' desperate plea is a request for permanence. It's a request for permanence. Do you see the outline of Moses' psalm? Life is short. God is angry. We are foolish. Moses asks for wisdom. Moses asks for mercy. And corresponding to his lament that our lives are so short, Moses asks for permanence. We've already seen that God gives us permanence in the promise of eternal life. Those who trust in Jesus will live forever in the new heavens and the new earth with God himself as their dwelling place. As verse 1 says, where there is no more toil, where there is no more trouble, where there is no more wrath, where there is no more death. But look at the request for permanence in this last verse, in verse 17. Moses says, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. One of the surprising fruits of the gospel is that even before Jesus comes back, the gospel makes our short lives meaningful again. Right? Moses cries out that God would establish the work of his people's hands. I think to ask that, that what his people do would last and would matter Maybe Moses is asking that 3,000 years later, people would still preach long sermons on his poetry. But what we see in Moses' prayer and in his own life is that God gives permanence to our short lives by incorporating our work in his eternal work. That's how God establishes the work of his people's hands. That's what's going to be significant about Moses in eternity, that he did God's work The first five books of the Bible. How many people will be in the new heavens and the new earth because they were brought to faith by the work of Moses' hands? And none of us is going to add to the Bible like Moses did. But my friends, let me encourage you. When you spend your life in the work of our God, when you serve faithfully and unnoticed at church, when you give generously, and sacrificially to support gospel work, when day in and day out you love your family and your fellow believers, when you work hard to provide for those whom God has entrusted to you, when you devote time to prayer, when you share the gospel with those in your life, then the work of your hands gets woven into the work of God's hands and our short lives find meaning in his plan. Can I tell you why I'm a Christian today? There are two explanations. One is that before the foundations of the world, God the Father gave me in love to God the Son as an act of sheer mercy. And here's how that worked out in space-time. My dad shared the gospel with me during family devotions. My dad brought his kids together and told them why Jesus died and why we needed him to have peace with God. And through my dad, through the work of my dad's hands, God gave me eternal life. God has established the work of my dad's hands. Praise the Lord. Friends, isn't God gracious? 
we read the first half of this psalm and I just think, man, if there's just some way that we can make it out of hell, that would be enough. If there's purgatory, that's fine. There's no such thing as purgatory. But as long as I can get out from under the terrible wrath of God, that's all that I want. And by the time we get to the end of this psalm, God has returned meaning even to our short lives now. Praise God. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word that gives wisdom. Thank you for Jesus Christ in whom you have given mercy to sinners. Thank you for your spirit who assures us of your steadfast love, even as he pours it out in our hearts. Lord, thank you for your gracious promise to give permanence to the work of our hands. Lord, would you teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom? Help us to believe what we have heard from your word today. Lord, thank you that even as we pray this morning, Jesus Christ, our mediator, intercedes for us. Lord, would you help us to fix our eyes on him? It's in his name that we pray. Amen.